If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with us once again to Luke chapter 2 and verse 6. And we'll be leaving this, these scriptures here. We've talked, we've used these in the last two lessons. And this is our final time to refer to them. And it has to do with the birth of Christ. Praise God. You look with us in two, Luke chapter 2 and verse 6. And I want to speak today on the subject, the day of small things. The day of small things. And it's ironic that God in his great wisdom has chosen to use small things in order to bring forth his wisdom and his greatness and his power and everything that he does. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ could have come to this world full grown. He could have just come, just come down out of heaven and been walking. He could have done that, but the Lord never chose the Messiah to come to this world in that fashion. He caused him to be born a babe. And not just a born a babe, but be born in a stable. A stable of all places, not in a house. I mean, uh, the king of kings, lord of lords, not in, not in a palace, you know, not in some great castle. Nothing like that. Just born in the lowest element you can imagine in a stable. And whenever he was born, there was no bed for him. There was no little baby bed. There was nothing. He was laid in a manger. The manger was what cows ate straw out of. They came in and the manger was a little... You know, you've seen pictures of it. And they put straw in it and cows eat of it. And Mary laid him in that manger in the straw. And that was how humble the birth of Jesus was. And I'm seeing all of that because God chooses small things for reasons. I'm going to talk to you about it here today. So if you look with us here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 6, I'm going to read these verses again here to you. Because everything is in reference here this morning to the, uh, to the small obscurity side of the birth of Christ. Verse 6, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she, Mary, should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And laid in swaddling clothes was just sort of like rags, probably rags they used to uh, wash cows before they milk them underneath and so forth, you know. And then they'd wash them and then they'd hang them up. This, any of you folks are familiar with dairy stuff, that's about the way they do it. And these were swaddling clothes that had just, these were just material that had been hung there. And so it was while, in verse 7, and she brought forth the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So they were in the stable of the inn. The innkeeper said, well, there's a stable back there. That's all I got left. If you want to go back there and spend the night, help yourself. And that was about the way it happened. Now, verse 12, I'm going to jump over here because this is when the angel appeared unto the, uh, to the shepherds in the field. Verse 12, and this shall be a sign unto you, the angel said to the shepherd. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe, the babe lying in a manger. Now, I'm pointing all that out to you here today to show you the 
the tremendous humility and humbleness and obscurity of the birth of Christ. The greatest event that would ever happen on the face of the earth for the sake of humanity was Jesus being born in this world and then going through his life and then going to Calvary. As you well know, Calvary was the greatest event. His birth, of course, was all attached to that. He could not go to Calvary until he had been born and and grew up. But Jesus did not come full grown. He came as a babe. And whenever he came as a babe, he came as a small, very small thing. And the thing I want to bring out to you is that God operates this way. And because he operates that way, you and I have to be aware that in God's wisdom, God's wisdom, there is some fabulous things to understand about God and how God operates so that we ourselves can have patience in the way God does things. You see, we don't have the patience that God has. We don't see big things in little things. We see big things in big things. And we, we sort of, you know, exalt the big things. If it's, uh, if, if, it's, uh, if it's a big crowd at a football stadium and we'd say, oh, there was 80,000 people in, the, in that big stadium. That's big. And we just, you know, people, they're excited about that. I think that's great. If it's a little football game out here in the, in the park with a few little kids, uh, you don't see big crowds gather there for that. You understand what I'm saying here? The contrast of human nature to want something to be big and that with God, how that he starts out with that that is very small. Uh, let me give you another verse of scripture here. And I think this sort of pinpoints, this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. This sort of tells you a little bit the way God operates in things. And uh, I'm saying this today for all of us because there's times when we, we feel like that we're not seeing the bigness of God. And I'm going to bring all these things out a little bit further on in our lesson. And so therefore we can lose patience in waiting on God, or we can say God is not interested or God just hasn't shown up because it's such an insignificant small thing, but God has his own way of doing things. Now look at this verse found in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 27 But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Now look at that. This is what what the writer of Paul says about Christ, about God. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. This is the way God operates. Verse 28. And base things of the world and things which are despised. Look at that. Have God chosen, yea, the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Even things naught means zero. That means nothing. Look at verse 29. Here's the reason for the whole thing. That no flesh should glory in his presence. So I want to talk to you a little bit here today about these things of the Lord here, where that he has chosen to do the little things that he might bring forth the wisdom of God, how the little things with God is greater than the great things of man. And as long as you and I can say, God, your way, your word, your truth, your holiness, 
your, your, your design for mankind is greater. Even though it's such a very simple and almost a humble thing. Yet if we could say, God, your ways are greater, then there is great, there is power and might in doing it God's way. Praise God. There's a scripture in the Bible that I'm sure that everybody has had questions about all their life. Jesus said, if a man smites you on one cheek, turn him to the other. What? Somebody hits you on one side of the face, you're going to turn to him the other? You know, that's, that's, such, a, that's such a small, insignificant, such a, a flimsy, such a no-no thing. And yet the Lord admonished us to do that. You know, and most of us don't feel that way at all. You know that. And, uh, and so if man smites you on one side, turn to the other. It's over. If he asks you for you, if he takes your coat, give him your cloak also. What? If he takes you, runs off with your jacket, say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got another jacket here. Take this one too. You know, and, and it seems like it's just, but God is trying to show us that his ways, even though they seem insignificant, they seem humble, they seem like they would not work yet because God's great power and his ways of doing things are in those things. God will always honor it and always bless it. Praise God. And uh, I'm going to read another verse of scripture to you. This is one that's found over in the book of Psalms. And this was a verse of scripture that the Lord gave me years ago when I was feeling like I was going through uh, trials and tests and nothing was happening and all those kind of things. Verse 8 two. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. And God has chosen, praise the Lord, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings that thou hast ordained strength. That's exactly what uh, happened here when the Messiah came. He was born a small babe. And out of Jesus would come the greatest strength for the saving of mankind that the world would, would ever see. That was him teaching, preaching, doing his miracles, finally going to Calvary and paying the price on Calvary and shedding his blood that others might be saved. Praise the Lord. So the question here is why is all these things here? Because God uh, does not despise small things. He wants us to know that he esteems them. I'm going to give you another verse of scripture, Zechariah. And uh, this is uh, Zechariah chapter 4. Uh, let me get to it here. Hang on a second. Okay. This is Zechariah uh, chapter 4, verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? The Lord's saying here, who has despised the day of small things? And he's starting out by saying here that if they're small, don't despise them because the things that I have ordained will become great and they will become greater. I want to give you some examples of that in a few moments. But God has ordained that. And I think to today that I'm speaking to somebody. Somebody, praise the Lord, that has to understand that in the smallness of things, there is greatness with God. Praise the Lord. It's there. So we have to understand and believe God for all things. And God has ordained and established. For who have despised the day of small things? Praise the Lord. And then uh, in conjunction with that verse of scripture, this scripture over here in, uh, in, in Psalms 8. I read Psalms 8 too, to you in Zechariah 12. Uh, 
Let me show you something here. This is not anything new to you folks. And uh, I have a lot of oak trees around my house and up in our neighborhood and these things are everywhere. Let me get a focus here. Focus, 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 automatic focus. I'm getting an automatic focus here. Oh, here's the one I want right there. Let's turn that off. Let's get this one. There. <laughs> All right. There we see it. Everybody see that? Are you sure you see it? It's pretty small. That's an acorn. Well, come on now. Leave us, leave us be. We want to see it. That's an acorn. And those acorns, if you live around here anywhere, these things are all over the place, have been all over for the last month and month and a half. How many of you agree with me? They're everywhere if you've got old trees around. Everything. Well, if he wants to, doesn't want to pick up on it that clearly, uh, you understand what it is. It's an acorn. That acorn is, is, is no bigger than the last joint. It's, it's, it's smaller than the last joint on my little finger. And yet in that acre, in that acre there, is all the DNA for a giant oak tree. Now you, you tell me how that could be in there. All the, the trunk, the root system, the, the limbs, the leaves, and the future abundance of acres that that tree will produce. If this little acre here is planted, it would grow a great oak tree. I got a lot of squirrels in my yards and I see them running around sometimes. And you see them wherever they are. Uh, Harry said he's got more squirrels over here in our, in our family life center over here running around over there than he know what to do with. They're just everywhere. You know why? Because a lot of old trees are over there. And a lot of acorns have fallen. And they're hustling to bury the oaks. And I laughed one day and I looked at those squirrels. I saw one of them today outside my window, outside my office at home. And both his cheeks were packed out full. I don't know whether he was planting them or digging them up and eating them because it's cold this morning. So he might say it's time to pick up some of them. They plant those seeds for their own selves. And I guess they remember where they put them or they think they do. And so they said, when I get hungry, I'll go there and I'll dig up some of the makers and I got some food. I'll eat them while they're, then when I get full, I'm going to plant some and hide them for future. And I was laughing about it one day and I said, what they don't know is that they are planting oak trees. The oak tree is the one that's getting all the advantage. They're hustling around and working, think they're doing it for themselves. And they're doing it for the oak tree. And then one day it hit me, no. They're not doing it for the oak tree. They're doing it for future squirrel generations for them to have food to eat. You know what I mean? Praise the Lord. Wow. I said, yeah. And the future squirrel generations will do the same thing for future squirrel generations and for the oak tree. So the oak tree doesn't perish. Praise the Lord. So I'm just pointing out to you here in all of this is the wisdom of God and is the greatness of God revealed. They say this is what made Solomon such a wise man is that God gave him the understanding of nature. If you read Proverbs a lot, he refers to nature about the animals and the coney on the rocks and 
He describes certain ones, how they act, what they do, the way they live. And so forth. it's apparent that he studied them and he watched them and he saw the wisdom of God in all the animals. And of course, that's all very true. So I'm telling you here today, folks, don't despise the day of small things. Obscurity, obscurity is part of the great wisdom and the purpose and the plan of Almighty God. Praise God. Uh, We all know this. You go to build a building. I don't care how big it is or how small it is. You have to have a foundation. If it's going to be a small building, you build a foundation. You know, shallow or whatever it is, monolithic style nowadays. They just they do the foundation around the edges and the slab all in one operation. It's called monolithic slab. And uh, they put steel in it and all that kind of stuff. And then they pour concrete in there. And then they start by building everything up on top and they cover it all up. And when they get all through, you never see the foundation. But God have mercy if you don't have a foundation. The foundation is one of the most important parts of that building. The foundation is obscure. You don't see it. But it is very essential. Yea, it is necessary for that building to be built and for that building to be structured the way it is. Praise the Lord. That little seed, and I'm going to hit this once again so you can see it. One end of it has a little stem. Look down the, to the right. It has a little thing sticking out the end. The other is a sort of a light brownish color. Uh, one end of this, and I don't know which is which there. I, I could guess, but I don't really know. One end of that will always be the trunk when it starts growing in the ground. The other end will always be the roots. The roots will go down. And the, and the part that's going to be the trunk will grow up. One will pop out of the ground and start putting out leaves. And then it'll start bearing a little small trunk and then little limbs. And then it goes under here. It goes and the, and the roots have to go down. The roots are equal, not equal in size necessarily, but equal in purpose. And as they go down and the others go up, the roots go down. They seek water and food nourishment that plants have to have. So, well, you know all that stuff. But I'm just pointing out to you here today that in all of this, that this little seed is already designed how it's going to grow. You can put it upside down. It'll turn it. It won't turn itself around, but the the whole process will turn around. The seed will lay it like it is. You can lay it flat, upside down, right side up, any way you do it. It's going to grow the right way. Praise God. You know why? Because God has programmed that thing to be like that. And don't ever tell me there is no God. I mean, the, the Bible says the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because for a person to say, I'm an atheist, that's the stupidest thing in the world to say when the wisdom of God is in such a small thing like this. And this is just what, and Jesus referred to these things, but it's that obscurity of the foundation, the obscurity of a tree uh, in an oak tree and how it grows and so forth. It's all there because God, praise the Lord, ordained it to be. I'm going to refer here to a verse of scripture in, uh, in Psalms. Look in Psalms 1. Psalms 1 1. 1 1. I'm going to read the first three verses. Psalms 1 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. This is talking about righteous people now. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly or standeth in the way of sinners. That means act like that. <coughs> Be one of those. 
nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. If you're going to pin underline that word scornful, don't be a critic. Don't scorn. Don't be a fault finder with everything in the world. Hey, we don't live in a perfect world, right? People are not perfect. I'm perfect and you're perfect, but everybody else is not. You know, <laughs> So we might as well just settle it. Praise the Lord. So anyhow, he says, not in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This is the righteous. Now the blessed is the man that walketh but in, in this righteous. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And look at verse 3. He, the righteous man, shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. A tree planted. Let's say a tree that's just planted. But when it's planted by the rivers of water... It'll never go without. It'll always flourish. It'll always have the food and the the nourishment and the water that it needs for it to grow, to be everything that God intended for it to be. And can I just say this for all of us here today? If you make up your mind, I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to serve God and I'm going to live for the Lord. I don't care what comes or goes. I don't care which way things happen. Amen. And can I just say another thing here? A lot of crazy things, folks, are happening in the world today. I got where I don't even hardly look at the news anymore. It's just so negative and so, I mean, so much. If you look at one news, it says one thing, and look at another news, it says something else. And everything is negative, negative. If it's not negative, they don't report nothing, you know. If it's something good news, they don't, they don't say anything about that because there's nothing, nothing to report. But there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. There's, I mean, there's, you know, there's terrorist threats. I read this week where there was some bombing, I think, we were in, in France again. And Netherlands now has got some problems going. And, and uh, now they're predicting there's going to be a big chaos in the Middle East when Trump pulls out all the troops. And I mean, you listen to all those kind of things. You think, oh, my God. I mean, the world is going to Hades in a handbasket. Pardon the language. But I'm just trying to tell you here today, folks, that you and I, our hope is in God. And God has everything in control. Praise the Lord. Everything's in control. So he says here in this third verse, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers and waters that bring forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Praise the Lord. So don't ever forget those three verses in walking with God and in serving the Lord and living for the Lord and being one of his faithful saints of God. Praise the Lord. Now we're talking about the tree and it being planted. Look at Luke, if you would, with me. Luke 13 for just a moment. Luke 13. And uh, this is where Jesus referred uh, to a tree being like, uh, like the kingdom of God being like a tree or like a uh, small grain, small seed, and then becoming a tree. And he refers to it as the mustard tree. The mustard tree is not the mustard greens like we know over here, the little patch of the green, but the mustard tree over in the Middle East was a large tree, very much like the oak tree or one similar to that. Look at verse 18. Then said he unto, then said he unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whithersoever shall I resemble it? Now, he's talking about God's kingdom on this earth, which is the church. That's the church. The church are the called out ones. The church is one name for it. The kingdom of God is another name. 
kingdom of heaven is another one. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is the same. That's why Jesus came and John the Baptist both came preaching when they first started their ministry, earthly ministry. They said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you read, uh, if you read one of the gospel books that say kingdom of heaven, if you read another gospel books saying the very same thing, they say kingdom of God. That's how we know they're the same thing. And so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And then later they were called, of course, the, the, uh, they were called the church, the called out ones. And then also they were called the body of Christ. Paul referred to in that fashion, but that's who we are. That's what we are part of. Praise the Lord. So this is talking about God's people in, on the earth. Uh, here in this life that we're in now. Verse 18, then said he unto the, unto what is the kingdom of God like and whereunto shall I resemble it? We're talking about the church now. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took cast into his garden and it grew and waxed a great tree. In other words, the kingdom of heaven started on this earth as a small group of men. There was 120 people in the upper room who received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There were 12 apostles. They went out and began to preach. They preached, preached. The gospel spread, spread, spread. Today it fills the earth. There is, there is millions and millions and millions. Holy Ghost filled, talking in tongues, Holy Ghost filled people all over the world. Uh, some of our, some countries in the world have an abundance of apostolic people. Uh, they, they, they do that God has just mightily blessed them. I could give you some, some real stories about some of these places where the gospel has gone forth and people have gotten saved. And <clears throat> other places, they've heard the gospel maybe a hundred years ago and uh, the word went forth. But the kingdom of God is all over this world. Praise the Lord. And now look at verse 21. It is like leaven, which a woman put hath hid in three measures of meal to the whole was leaven. In other words, sometimes you see it. Here's the church. Everybody sees it. They pass up and down the street. You come inside, you see the pews. We see each other. But it's also quiet. Somebody on the cell phone telling somebody, you need to find Jesus Christ for your soul, you know, sin. It's somebody sitting in a restaurant saying, I'd like you to come to church with me next Sunday, you know. It's, it's just talking to people here and there. It's like leaven. You don't see it. No big audience. It's small, but it's working. Praise God. Unseen. And this is the way the kingdom of God is. And this is the way God has ordained it. But all the time is growing, small, insignificant in appearance, but all the time it is growing because God has ordained it. Praise God. Amen. Uh, Paul had a season of growth. A lot of people don't know this about Paul. I want you to go to Galatians with me for a moment. I'm going to show you something. A lot of people think of Paul getting converted and all of a sudden become a great preacher and apostle. It didn't happen like that. It didn't happen. A lot of people don't realize this. But let me show you here. This is what Paul says about himself in the book of Galatians about his conversion. And I'm reading here in chapter 1, verse 15. Galatians 1 and 15. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but when it pleased God, this is Paul talking now, writing. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace... To reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. This is when he first got saved. This is going on his road to Damascus and uh, got thrown off the horse, bright light. You know the story about Paul's conversion. When he went into the city, Ananias told him that he needed 
be baptized. He prayed for him. He got his eyesight and also received the baptism of the Holy Ghost there in the ninth chapter of the book of Galatians. Uh, pardon me, the ninth chapter of the book of, of Acts. Now, he's referring to that here in Galatians 1, 16. Verse 17, I'll read. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. This is after his conversion now. But I went into Arabia. Oh, wow. He went into Arabia. Arabia is across the Jordan River over into the desert areas. And this is today what we would think of in this area would be Jordan, the country of Jordan. He said, I went into Arabia and returned again in Damascus. And verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Notice that. Paul was, his, it was somewhat in obscurity for three years. He preached a little bit around those synagogues and so forth there in Damascus after the three years. But for three years, he got along with God and got with his word and studied and studied and studied. And that was the acre that was growing. Do you understand what I'm pointing out here? He didn't just get converted and whambo. I mean, he's out there preaching, even though Paul was a very brilliant, intelligent person. He had to put all this in perspective. Jesus Christ in perspective with Moses and the teaching of the law of the Old Testament and being the brilliant man and understanding the law like he did. He went back and researched it and said, wow, there it is. It's all there before my eyes. I never knew it. Jesus revealed it all to him. And then after the three years, then he went up to, went up always to Jerusalem is always up. Even though he was, Damascus is north of Jerusalem and the Bible is always up when you go to Jerusalem. Everybody with me on that? So he went up to Jerusalem uh, to, uh, to where the uh, Peter, Paul, Peter, not Paul, Peter, James, John, uh, Andrew, uh, and, and the great church of Jerusalem that it had become at this point, which is about 5,000 members they had at that, about this time. So it had begun to, begin to grow. So what I am pointing out to you here is that Paul himself went through a time of simply of ob- obscurity that God would develop him and make him a great guy that used him. But that was the seed growing time, the seed growing time. So it was the same thing with David. David, you know, we, we all know the story of David killing Goliath, 17th chapter, 1 Corinthians. Uh, David was a young lad. We don't know how old he was. He was 15, 16, 17 years old. But he was taking care of his father's sheep, and his father said, hey, take some food up to your brothers. They're up there fighting this big war with the Philistines. Go up there, he and Saul. Here's some bread. Here's some cheese. Here's some food. Take them. Give some to the king. Give some to your brothers. Let them know that we're all behind them. We're praying for them. Hope everything turns out all right. And David goes up there as a shepherd boy with nothing but a sling on his side and so happy to go there and see God's army fighting the enemy. And he hears Goliath roar out of challenge. You know the story. You know the story. And he goes out, of course, he takes on the challenge. He goes out and he kills Goliath and everything. He becomes a great hero. But before all of that, Before all of that, he was in obscurity. David was just a shepherd boy in the backside of the desert taking care of his father's sheep. And he was the youngest of the whole family. He was the baby boy. He was the eighth of seven brothers. Eight brothers. He was the eighth, uh, eight, seven brothers. He was the eighth brother. And he was the youngest of all. So they were all, you know, out fighting the battle. 
David was just taking care of the followers. His father said, David, you're going out there. In fact, when they was going to find somebody to anoint to be king, and Samuel says, Jesse, is this all the sons you got? I got seven of them here. None of them's qualified. He says, this is, God has said, he hasn't told me on any of these. You got anybody else? Well, yeah, there's David. He's the youngest one. He's, he's way out there in the desert. I mean, way out there in the pasture taking care of the sheep. That's all he is. He's just a shepherd boy. But do you understand what I'm talking about? That small times, the quiet times, the obscurity times. But God was developing him. He had learned to play a harp. And that's something. He had learned to worship God. He had learned to put words together and sing them on this harp and worship the Lord with song, songs we call psalms today. They were Jewish songs and they were put into music as they would have it back in those days. And they were psalms that we have, the book of Psalms. We had the 150 of them in the book in the Bible. And David wrote many of them. I would probably, I don't know what percentage. One day I'm going to look it up and see how many, but he wrote tremendous number of those psalms. In fact, he's noted for being the greatest psalm writer that there ever was. All of this happened on the backside of that desert. And after he was anointed king, they said, all right, get on back to your shepherd, your sheep. You know, he was just said, I got to go my way. The guys, boys all said they got away. And then his dad suggested, and then get back to your sheep out there. And you've been anointed king. All right, go on back out there and go to work. So when he had that anointing upon him, he later killed a bear and he killed a lion that came out against those sheep because he had that anointing upon him. Now, what I'm pointing out to you here today is that were times of obscurity. Don't ever disregard obscurity. God is growing. The seed is growing. It's going to become what God wants it to be. If we can always say, God, I'm in your hands. I'm in I stay with you. I'm in, I'm in the groove. I'm what you want me to be. Praise the Lord. And God will use us in due time. He will never fail us. Praise the Lord. And he'll always keep his hand on us and always go with us all in all things. There is a need on our part to be patient in waiting, to be patient in waiting. Sometimes that's a hard thing to do. Wait on the Lord. Just be patient. Look at James 5, 7 for a moment, just with me. James 5, 7. James 5, 7. Let me find it, yes. Well, hang on a minute. I got to hear someplace. All right. It says, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold the husbandman, that's a farmer. The husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. That means that in Israel they had what was called the early rain, the latter rain. That was two seasons of raining of the rain that would come. It was necessary for those rains to come for them to have the harvest and the crops. So those former rain, latter rain, now that's referred to a lot of times as being the original outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the early church. And then the latter part of the pouring out of the Holy Ghost in the 19th, in the 20th century and now falling into the 21st century. And so, but it's in a spiritual way. This is referring to the natural here. So he said, be patient therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth 
and hath long patience for it until he hath received the early and latter rain. Verse 8, be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Praise God. So he's telling that early church, be patient, wait on God, trust in the Lord. God will never fail you. Just be patient on God. God is faithful in all things. Praise God. He'll never fail us. He'll never leave us. Amen. But God is faithful in everything. Praise the Lord. He waited. Uh, It takes time. We call it a year for the earth to go around the sun. You know how long it takes the earth to go around the sun to make us a revolution? 300 65 days, six hours, 48 seconds, minutes, and 46 seconds. Did you know that? Did you know that's how long it takes the earth to go around? You can look it up if you want to. But this is how long it takes the earth to go around. This is why they, for a long time, they measured everything about 360 days, 360. And they knew they were off about five days. So what they would have at the end of the year, they'd have five days of just whatever. At one point, they even had it for Jupiter's birthday, another time Zeus's birthday. These are gods of the Greeks and gods of the Romans. That's what December 25th to the 30th was all about. Did you know that? That's that we, we, we now have it for Christmas, thank God. We celebrate Christ's birthday, which is the real celebration of it. But don't knock it because we're honoring Christ's birthday, Jesus' birthday, because he did live. I'm just telling you the real history of it all. And so there was those five days. And so they said, you know what, let's just throw an extra five days there to get us through it. In 45 AD, 45 AD is when they discovered this Egyptian astrologist found out there's five other, five more days. They kept... They kept finding themselves sowing seed when it was still winter time, you know, or something like that. They, they had to readjust the, the whole calendar system. And so they did this. Then finally, they realized that there was some minutes involved, hours. For, they, they, they put leap year in there, you know, leap year. Every four years, that was the six hours. Six times four is 24. It's 24 hours. It gives us an every day. So every four years, there's an extra day. You understand then you got the minutes. You got the 48 minutes. Then you got the 46 seconds. You got the 48 minutes factor that keeps building up, keeps building up, keeps building up. That's why in 533 AD, when they made the BC and the AD, they literally jumped ahead by 11 days. 11 days. They just scrapped 11 days and jumped ahead. And then they established the 14, also established there for four years. And then every 100 years, if it's an even if it's an even number or an odd number, depending. If it's an even number, they go with the leap year. If it's an odd number on a hundred-year roll, then they they will have another leap year, a leap that which is the twenty, which is February twenty-ninth. The reason I'm telling you all of that stuff is simply to tell you that everything is is the way it is, and it never loses time. Everybody, stay with me. It's always on time. 365 days, six six hours, 48 minutes, and 46 seconds. Not 47, not 45, 46. It's always on time because God is always on time, folks. God is always on time. 
We live in this area. We live in this area of the shooting, you know, man to the moon and so forth. And uh, I don't know whether you know it or not, but when they fire a man, when they used to shoot men off to the moon in the rockets, they never aimed for the moon. Did you know that? They didn't aim that rocket to the moon. They aimed it to where the moon would be two and a half days later. Now, that's where they aimed it. Here's the earth. Here's the moon. And they aim it over here. Here it goes. Why are you shooting over here? The moon's over here. Because the moon's going to be over here two and a half days later when they finally get there. And scientists trusted that time that it takes for that moon to get there. They had no doubt about it be there. You know why? God's always on time. He's always on time. God is always, and he'll be on time in your life. If you wait on God, be patient, waiting on the Lord, God will never fail you. He'll always be right on time. Praise God. There is a very interesting, I'm going to close with this, a very interesting story about uh, Lazarus. When Lazarus, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, they were brother and two sisters, and they were friends to Jesus they, they loved Jesus very much, and he loved them very much. They lived outside of Jerusalem on the east side, uh, a place called Bethesda, and, uh, or Bethany, rather. And uh, Lazarus got sick, and they sent word to Jesus. They said, come quickly. G- Lazarus is very, very sick. And uh, so they, uh, they told Jesus, and uh, Jesus took his time. It says here, he just, uh, he waited around two days. Look at verse six here. This is 11th chapter of St. John. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. This is Jesus. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And the disciples said, hey, he's very sick. Shouldn't we be going there now? Shouldn't we be making our way? It'll take us a while to get there. Take us a couple of days to get there. And And he says, he just stayed where he was for two more days. And then when he finally got there, look at verse 17. This is eleven seventeen of St. John. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Jesus, you messed up, right? And Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, about 15 for a look down at verse 21. Then said Martha unto him, Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. If you'd have been here, we know you can heal. And we know if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. You see what I'm saying? But you were late. (laughs) I love this. Jesus, you were late. You were not on time. And then... uh, Jesus said unto him, verse 23, Jesus said to her, thy brother shall rise again. And then she says, uh, I know in the last resurrection. Yeah, I know he's going to rise again. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. It doesn't matter what time it is. I'm always on time. Praise God. Now, that was Martha talking. This is a sister now. She comes out a little bit later in verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Now she's sort of rebuking Jesus for not being there, just like Martha did. 
And so she's put up. Verse, verse 39 says, Jesus said, take ye away the stone, Martha. The sisters of him that was dead saith unto him, Lord, by now he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Verse 41, then they took away the stone from hence and the dead was, uh, where the dead laid. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard my prayer. Verse 43, and when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, and he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes on and his face and bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. Hallelujah. Folks, I'm telling you, Jesus is right on time. When he's late, he's on time. I'm telling you, have faith in the Lord. Trust the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Trust God in the small things. Trust him, praise the Lord, in the times of patience. Trust him, praise the Lord, that sometimes we just wait on God, but God will always be on time. He'll always do it right. And one of these days, the trumpet's going to sound and he'll be on time. <laughs> Praise God. Let's stand together and just worship God. Anybody need an acorn? Anybody want to plant an acorn? Amen. God love you. Praise the Lord. Let's lift our hands and worship God and thank him right now.